My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Craig Heron. How did ordinary people who came before us live? How did they struggle against oppression and injustice? Once upon a time, history, meaning the academic discipline, couldn't answer those questions and really didn't care. That began to change as the social movements of the 1960s and 1970s swept through universities and a new generation of historians began to do their work differently. To take seriously voices and stories previously excluded, such as those of women and people of color and workers, and to re-narrate the past we all share in ways that took them seriously. Craig Heron was a white working-class Ontario kid who was politicized as a university student during those turbulent years. He went on to become a labor historian, and he has taught history and labor studies at York University in Toronto for more than three decades. His latest book is a massive study of working-class life in the industrial city of Hamilton, Ontario, between 1890 and 1940. The book is called Lunch Bucket Lives, Remaking the Workers' City, published by Between the Lines, and it brings together examinations of all manner of changes across multiple aspects of life in the workplace, the household, and the community. It explores what working people in that era did to survive under very harsh conditions. Often, Heron suggests, they took an approach he describes as working-class realism that manifested in different ways through survival strategies at individual, household, and community levels, but which also, at least sometimes, included moments of collective confrontation with the powers that be through strikes, efforts to unionize, riots, and the creation of independent working-class political organizations. This detailed examination of collective resistance that, and this is crucial, places it firmly in the broader context of everyday life, may assist movements today in making decisions about how to organize and mobilize in increasingly stark times. Moreover, Heron points out that the era covered by the book may be particularly relevant to today's struggles, as the unfettered capitalism, precarious employment, grinding poverty, and near-total absence of a social safety net at that time closely resembles what for the last 30 years the forces of big business have been relentlessly trying to return us to. Heron speaks with me about working-class life and resistance in early 20th century Ontario, and about the relevance of history to social movements today. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Craig Heron. I teach at York University. I have been there for over three decades, where I've taught in the history department and the labor studies program. Along the way, I've been active in a number of paraprofessional and professional fields. I was vice chair of the Ontario Heritage Foundation. I was president of the Canadian Historical Association and was active for many years with the Workers' Arts and Heritage Centre in Hamilton. And as a direct link to that, the book that I brought out last year is called Lunch Bucket Lives, Remaking the Workers' City. And it's an in-depth look at workers' lives in Hamilton between 1890 and 1940 
looking at as many different aspects of their household lives, wage earning lives, their community experience and the interactions amongst all those and trying to get at what that class experience was like. I'm a product of the working class. I grew up in working class Scarborough. My father's a blue collar worker. My mother was a secretary. But I don't think that that was the starting point because in many ways I went to university hoping to escape all of that. But what happened in the late 1960s, of course, was that a lot of my generation encountered some politics that shook us up quite profoundly. And by the early 1970s, I was thinking about the world in a much more radical way. And it was definitely at that point that I began to see the importance of doing history about the kinds of people that I'd grown up with and the kinds of people that had been so ignored by Canadian history and most history in the Western world. So I went off to graduate school with the intention of writing about the working class. And it was a period in which people were interested in doing community studies, like focusing in on one community to be able to get at the really intense and important dynamics of that community to really see how things worked out. So I looked around and thought, well, I want to do a community study that is of a decent-sized city that allows me to look at a period that had begun to interest me from the writings that I was reading. The early 20th century with the rise of mass production and scientific management and a whole range of new experiences that were hitting the working class and reshaping it in all sorts of ways. So Hamilton sort of fit the bill. I had never lived in Hamilton. My view of it was really what you saw from the Burlington Skyways, you headed to Niagara Falls, which is what probably 98% of Canadians think of Hamilton. Those smokestacks belching fire, well, they don't do it as much anymore. So it started out as a largely academic project. I finished the dissertation, set it aside because it was enormous, and I thought, no one's going to publish this. I started into a different project, which was a book on steelworkers. And nearly 10 years later, I came back to it and said, okay, I want to do a book that's going to bring together some of the issues that were in that dissertation, but a whole bunch that I didn't deal with because the household was really not there and a lot of community life was ignored and so on. So I started that around 1990, and then all sorts of other projects came along and deflected me. So I now say that the whole thing took me 38 years from the time that I started my PhD until it came out last year. And then in the early 1990s, I was on the board of the Workers' Arts and Heritage Center, which still was just a board. We didn't yet have a center. And our focus, particularly after a feasibility study had been done, was that we should have this center open in Hamilton. Trying to do that in Toronto, we just get lost. Hamilton had the right kind of history and sensibility to labor history and a very sympathetic mayor who was urging us to do this. So I got very intensely involved in the community politics of Hamilton. We were at city council meetings and I was meeting people and I got to know a lot more people. While I was working on the book, I was simultaneously getting to know the city personally a lot more. So I'm sure it's not easy to draw out a few key ideas from a 750-page book, but as best you can, give listeners a sense of some of your key findings about working class life in Hamilton in those years. The starting point, and I think this is one of the large lessons that I want people to take away from the book, is that the working class isn't made once and for all time, and then it's just the same forever after. And then people start to say, well, it's disappearing because it's not like it used to be. In actual fact, what I was looking at was a complete recomposition and reconstruction of the working class that started in the 1890s and was well underway by the First World War. It had to do with the number of changes that were taking place on many fronts, most obviously in industrial life and the kinds of jobs that were available because whole new industries arrived. The steel industry arrived, hadn't been there before. 
Canadian Westinghouse, International Harvester, National Steel Car, a whole range of big, big companies that brought mass production and new kinds of production techniques and processes and new managerial systems and so on. And I thought it was important to isolate that period starting in the 90s and ending around the Second World War because at that point, another period of recomposition started. We have to think about phases of industrial development, and this is a kind of second industrial revolution that happens in that early 20th century period. So that was the first thing I wanted people to get a sense of. And the second was, of course, how do people, working people respond to all those changes? And that's a way more complicated question to answer, partly because it's not a stable population. Part of what happens is literally a recomposition in terms of numbers. It's way bigger population than it had been in the 1890s. And its ethnic mix changes quite a lot. For the first time, there are large numbers of Italians and Poles and Ukrainians and other Southern and Eastern European groups that are moving in who are being recruited into the steel mills and into the heavy industrial jobs in the most rotten, horrible positions available. Simultaneously, large numbers of British immigrants, far more British immigrants than anybody else, so you got a real huge number of newcomers who were coming into this new environment because the jobs are opening up. Many of those people just pass through and leave, especially the Europeans who had left their families behind in Sicily or wherever it was and had no intention of ever staying in the first place. They worked for a while, earned the money, sent it home, then they went back themselves. The interesting process is trying to figure out how do people respond to this situation and that old set of theoretical questions around agency and constraint that writers have been trying to sort through for quite some time. And I don't know that I had anything profoundly new to say about that in terms of the theory, but I was really struck by how there was a kind of working class realism that was in place. And I don't by any means mean that to be translated as working class conservatism at all, because what it was was a very flexible attitude to what can we do under the circumstances? What's possible now? And very often these were family strategies. What can our family together do by sending the kids out to work, you know, organizing our family resources to maintain the family economy? But it was also flexible enough that if the job market was expanding and there was far less unemployment, then there was a kind of new spirit of possibility and people would push further for what they wanted and would raise the level of demands that they waived. So unionization might rise or they might start voting for the Independent Labor Party. And during and right after World War I, this happens big time. There's a real surge of a sense of possibilities for working people that they are going to try and make sure that the clock isn't turned back to a world in which their bosses fired unionists and they were paid badly and they weren't taken seriously and they had no job security and so on and so on. So in a lot of ways, what I wanted to convey was a sense on so many different fronts of their lives, how they were working through this working class realism as a process of survival and more than survival attempt to build a life and how the family played into that, how their community played into that, how their workmates played into it. It's hard to go beyond that level of summary without getting into a lot of detail because what you find is, you know, if you look at the workplace, there are a number of questions. If you look at popular culture, there are a number of interesting observations. But those are the kinds of things that I hope people are going to take away from the book. The final thing I'll say, of course, is that what I discover is that in an environment in which people are chronically insecure most of the time, even if they have jobs, they're constantly worried about not having jobs, and they have nothing like a social safety net in this period. It looks an awful lot like the world that neoliberalism wants us to be in in the early 21st century. And in a lot of ways, it therefore has a lot of relevance if we look at, okay, this is where we could end up and where arguably some people have already ended up, large numbers of people who are in precarious employment in the large cities in Canada. Talk more about why you think it's important 
to pay attention to the agency of working class people and working class families and working class communities in responding to broad social changes. And give some more examples that you found in your research. Agency is a loose word. It's one that we have to use very carefully. To go back to my notion of working class realism, I think people use their agency within a context of understanding the constraints at that moment and what's possible and not possible. But I noticed a number of patterns that emerged. One was for the working class mother who is finding people knocking at her door saying, uh, we're from the public health department. We want to check that you're raising your kids appropriately in one way or another. And a whole range of new interventions from social work, from public health, from the education system that are really blaming working class mothers for not being good mothers and not being scientific mothers, which is the vocabulary that's being used in the period. The definite attempt to try and simply keep your distance from all of these things, to try and avoid contact. So the mothers who wouldn't go to the well baby clinics, the workers who would go into one of these mass production factories and quit within four hours and never come back. And labor turnover became a huge problem in plants by the First World War. The new immigrants that arrived, the non-Anglo immigrants who would cozy up to the missionaries from the Protestant churches, not because they were willing to be converted, but because those guys would get them access to jobs in the plants that otherwise they might not have access to. And that's not quite avoidance, but it's a careful calculation. The working class girls who were working in factories who were encouraged to go to the YWCA that was set up for them in the east end of Hamilton would go in to play basketball and baseball, but they would consciously avoid the religious ceremonies that they were also encouraged to go to. It was a way of looking for the resources that would enrich their lives and taking those selectively and carefully and using them to build a particularly working class kind of life that was based on this limited income and relatively limited horizons for in terms of what you could expect. That was true in consumption, the way in which they spent their money. Within working class families, the people who were probably spending most loosely were the young people who were not yet married, who were in a courtship pattern, especially the young men, who would spend their money on alcohol, despite the fact that they were being told that this was bad and you know, eventually prohibition shut down alcohol in 1916. Nonetheless, they would still go to the blind pigs and enjoy their drinks. The young women who, despite all of the constraints on feminine identities that were being promoted by the dominant culture, they were going off to dance halls, which were opening up in much larger numbers for the first time, and dance these wild so-called animal dances where they could actually express their sexuality openly in ways that said, okay, it's possible for me to have fun and engage in this commercial culture on my terms, and it doesn't have to be in the sort of constrained ways that are expected of us. And of course, go well beyond those sort of daily battles and daily forms of either refusal or resistance to the more organized ones. There were constant attempts to actually fight back at moments when things were unbearable in the paid workplace. So working groups frequently engaged in strikes when they didn't have unions just because they were not prepared to put up with management changes of various kinds. And there were growing attempts to unionize when it was possible. Hamilton had some of the most anti-labor employers in the country, and certainly they made sure that unions were kept out as much as possible and then kept as weak as possible when they were actually able to get a toehold in the factories. But for the most part, strikes were lost and unions were defeated. But there was a consistent attempt again and again to reorganize, to make some attempt to benefit workers. And at moments when the horizons seemed to open up and the possibilities seemed greater, they also listened to orators and organizers from the left who said, we can organize political alternatives to the conservatives and the liberals, and we can create an independent labor party, in which they did, and they got people elected to the Ontario legislature and to city council and to the school board. 
And further left, there were first socialists and then communists who intervened and said, we need to organize the unemployed or we need to organize industrial unions and workers listened. One of the moments that the Communist Party could take greatest credit for was 1932 on May Day when they got probably 10,000 people out in a park, maybe even more, where the police broke them up and firemen were brought in to turn on their fire hoses to push them back in a thing that horrified the working class community. There's a sociologist of McMaster, Peter Archibald, who did a lot of interviews of people who lived through the 30s, and he interviewed people decades later who still remembered that incident in 1932 with disgust as something that was just an outrageous thing to have happened. So there were real moments of confrontation as well as simply ones of daily survival. And I think the interesting dynamic is what goes on between those. I mean, when you get to the point of trying to organize unemployed demonstrations, you're building on some of the daily struggles and points of resistance that people have been tackling for a very long time. And that's how you build your movement. And that touches on what was, for me, one of the most important features of the book, the way that it pays attention to both everyday life and those rarer, more collective and confrontational moments. So draw out for listeners a bit more of that context, that relationship between everyday moments of surviving and resisting at an individual or family level and those more collective and visible moments of resistance. Let's take another example. In 1906, there's a strike of the men who run the streetcars in Hamilton. It's a really big battle, and it goes on for a month. During that time, the community is completely mobilized behind them. And it's interesting to watch how that mobilization happens. People are out in the streets refusing to let the streetcars run. They're throwing rocks at the streetcars. Who's throwing the rocks? Well, a lot of them are young boys, teenage boys probably. The distinction isn't made. And this just is part of a pattern of the way in which working class boys spend their lives. They're out there on the street, toughing it up, hanging out on street corners, roaming through the streets in gangs. And this becomes folded over into their contribution to this big battle. As they get a bit older, they're part of a bachelor culture that lasts for quite a while because they're not going to get married until they're well into their 20s. So they probably had 10 years of experience in the workforce after they leave school before they're settling into any kind of marriage. And this tough, freewheeling bachelor culture with a lot of heavy drinking and sports and whatnot, that's what becomes extremely important in the first attempts to organize the industrial unions because they bring these guys in who are really tough-minded and are willing to stand up to bosses and who are good on picket lines and so on. You find that young women who are drawn into the first strikes of women dressing up in their finest on the picket lines because that's the way they like to present themselves to the world, to show off their respectability and their toughness. These are the same ones who are walking the picket lines and then going off to dance the tango in the evening. There's so many ways in which you can find these kinds of levels of engagement on a daily basis where people are determined to carve out a life for themselves. And then when the opportunity opens up, they push it into the public domain. On a sort of more respectable level, where you're not in street fighting mode, there are for example, in 1917, women get the vote in Ontario. The Labour Party decides they better have a women's auxiliary. The women say, thank you very much. And most of them are the wives of the labour leaders. Most of them say, thank you very much, but we want our own women's independent Labour Party. So they set up their own organization, have their own educationals, do their own work. You know, They do make sandwiches for the boys for some of their meetings and whatnot, but they really have their own interest. 
one of the first leaders of that is a woman whose background was in church work and the YWCA and such like, and she's just carried all of that over into this new role for working class women as creating a new political space. Subsequently, other women in a slightly more radical mode form a women's labor league in the 1920s that has an even more radical agenda. And of course, the ways in which they tap into popular culture. I wished I could make a more of those connections, but it was interesting to me that in 1914, the Independent Labour Party is running their perennial candidate who has been in the Ontario legislature since 1906. He got elected just at the end of the street railway strike, and he's very popular, a guy named Alan Studholm. He runs again, and they run a comic strip in the local Labour newspaper that's based on the Mutton Jeff comic strip that's become very popular in the mainstream media. But they readapted it to show that he's part of this comic world, but he's a victor. He's going to overcome the Tory candidate. So on. There are ways in which the popular culture, it supposedly, in some people's thinking, has just saturated working people with an alternative understanding of the world and well, they could never think in radical ways because they've just got this clamp of popular mass culture in their heads. Well, in actual fact, they use bits of that mass culture when they need it to construct their own agendas to meet their own needs. Over and over again, I was looking for that, ways in which workers who had developed techniques of survival and resistance could build that up to some level of community struggle. And it didn't happen often. The large community struggles are, in fact, serious and sometimes successful, but they very seldom last. And so there must have been an ongoing memory that it's a real risk to do this, and we have to do it very cautiously but it's not going to erase the possibilities of keeping that ongoing struggle with the social workers and the public health nurses and the school teachers and all those other people we're battling with on a daily basis and the landlords and whoever, because that's the real battle. But at the end of the book, I end up trying very hard not to sound too pessimistic, but the story is, of course, there are some real heroes that pull together big collective battles for working class Hamilton, but they almost all, at the end of the day, are unsuccessful. I mean, they're, they're not able to make anything last for any length of time. And so you inevitably fall back to, well, it's those folks who just hung on day after day and insisted on a working class agenda of their own that, yeah, sometimes overlapped with what their bourgeois employers and community leaders and so on expected of them. But it definitely was one that they'd worked out with their own priorities and their own initiatives. And I think, as you pointed out in the review that you wrote of the book, that that's an important thing for people on the left to think about, that especially looking back, we focus entirely on the huge struggles, the moments that are just filling the front pages of newspapers. We'll learn a certain amount, but we'll not really understand how communities got to that point and how they kept going after it. And I think that's an important part of what I wanted to convey in writing the book. What relevance do you see for the history that you present in Lunch Bucket Lives for movements and struggles today? I think that the neoliberal agenda, insisting that the individual is the source of all good and that the social and the collective are to be disparaged, is really a fundamental problem that the history of Hamilton in the first part of the 20th century really reinforces. As we have been encouraged for 30 years to think about the need to dismantle the social safety net of even the limited kind that we had in Canada of the parts of the welfare state that were largely torn asunder in the 1990s and the constant erosion of the ones that have survived, the pension plan and Medicare. Looking back, when you see what agonies people were going through in 1900s, 10s, 20s about whether they could afford to go to a doctor and what was going to happen to them in old age. If we move towards a world where, and we have, I mean, the pension situation is deplorable in Canada, 
the things that we can look back to are the ways that was so hard to live without the things that we actually won in the post-war period, even in the limited way that they came in. And we look back to the moments when there was any kind of positive change for the working class, workers were organized. And that meant that unions but also organized politically. But unions made a difference. And the fact that unionization continues to taper off, it's a reminder that these are things that we have to fight for and hold on to in the 21st century. Because without them, the vulnerability that these people had, the insecurity, the precariousness, to use our common term now, is endemic. It's something that you live with on a daily basis, and it doesn't make life great. It really constrains what's possible. And if there's any period in which the 99% versus the 1% was evident, it was in that early 20th century period when the rich did phenomenally well, and the taxation of their wealth was virtually non-existent. Let's be frank about it. It's a lesson in the horrors of capitalism when it actually is allowed to run its full course without any constraints. And from some workers' voices in that period, in Hamilton, as in many other parts of Canada and the rest of the world, there were other voices that said there could be a different kind of society. And periods of time, workers listened to that and thought, yeah, I think you're right. And it's another lesson that I think we have to keep in our minds. And stepping back from this specific project, talk more about why you think it's important to encourage critical engagement with this kind of history outside of universities in movements and communities? The Canadian Labor College, the Canadian Labor Congress used to run every year as a residential six-week course that union members would go to. The most popular course every year was labor history, by far. It didn't matter who taught it. And it was almost always because workers would come away with this sense of, oh, my God, I had no idea that these kinds of things had a history to them, that people were concerned about the same things we are back in time. And I think that there's a tremendous power to bringing that history to current movements, to give them a sense of perspective on where they've been, where they're going, and what they can learn from history, what they can build on. There's a way in which history can be woven into the traditions of activism in the labor movement and the larger community. Above and beyond that, there's also a larger issue that people have stopped talking about the working class and public life. More and more, everyone is middle class now. So in the last election campaign, including the NDP, we're just trying to talk about how we have to help the middle class in Canada. Well, in actual fact, they actually mean, in part, the working class, but they don't want to talk about it in those terms. And I think that part of resurrecting this history is part of a larger project, a larger set of initiatives to remind people that there are large numbers of people, huge numbers of people in the cities of Canada and in the countryside for that matter, who work for wages and who live in various kinds of insecurity and aspire to better lives than they're getting at this point. And to engage a larger public in that debate is a very large part of what I think this kind of historical resurrection that I think I've been part of for all these years has to do. Those of us who write labor history are conscious that it can seem that it's just arcane and that it's all very interesting, but it's all in the past. And I deny that. I think that the relevance is constant and it's the impact on struggles now and on policymaking now and on all sorts of contemporary activities can be really enormous. Can be, may not be, but can be. You have been listening to my interview with York University historian Craig Heron. We've been talking about his new book, Lunch Bucket Lives, Remaking the Workers' City. To learn more about it, search for it on btlbooks.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, 
go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.